You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. So today's teaching will be out of 1 Peter, as you heard, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. If you're a note taker, I have four points for you. It's a confusing time, a living hope, a genuine faith, and a new family. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, I thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you for this time where we can worship you, that we can congregate together and study your word. Lord, I pray that you give me clarity of mind. Lord, that you open our ears and our hearts to your word. And Lord, I pray that you rebuke us where we need rebuked, you correct us where we need corrected. And Lord, use your word to train us in righteousness. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first point is a confusing time. I don't know if you have ever had that moment in life where things just seemed odd, uh, things didn't seem to make sense. I think for me, one of the, those biggest moments was early in, in my conversion, right? When I uh, became a Christian, I, I was, you know, I, I wasn't really raised in a Christian environment. We, you know, we went to an Episcopal church, you know, every now and again around Christmas, Easter, you know, we were Christers, CEOs, whatever you call them. You know, we went uh, occasionally. But I, I didn't grow up in a, you know, a, a Christian home, per se. And I remember when I, when I converted, there was, a, there was a man who pulled me aside and talked to me about my language and some other areas of life that uh, just didn't coincide with what Scripture taught. And listen, I, I really didn't know. I, I wasn't like offended that he pulled me aside. I, I was very ignorant on just the Christian life itself. I was, I was new to all of it. I was, it's like Jasmine, right? It was a whole new world for me. And, I, and here I am trying to glean from this man. And, uh, but it was in- incredibly confusing and because though I had converted, some of my family had not, right? Like they were still my family, my friends, you know, before my conversion were still my friends. Right? I was dating the same person before conversion, after conversion, and nothing, nothing else changed immediately. And so it was very confusing. And that's kind of what we see here in First Peter, this group of early Christians a bit confused and disheartened about how things are going. It's not quite what they expected and a little confused on what their expectations ought to be. Who would read with me? It's 1 Peter 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God and the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter starts off this letter greeting those in Asia Minor. This is modern-day Western Turkey. And Peter is going to make the claim in chapter 5 that he's writing for Babylon. Now, most scholars think he's referencing uh, Rome, actually. Uh, and that's a small detail, but it's a significant one. Something you're going to see through the entire, uh, not only today's passage, but the entire First Peter, is that he's going to be using Old Testament imagery and pointing these saints to Old Testament saints. In fact, I I think you actually see it here. Notice what Peter calls these people, elect exiles of the dispersion, right? These three terms are very important. In fact, it's called some debate about the book, whether or not it was written to Jews or primarily to Gentiles. I personally think it was written to primarily Gentiles. Now, the term 
elect or chosen is often used for Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, we see Abraham, right, the great patriarch, being referred to both chosen, elect, and as an exile. And the word dispersion was a term used when Jews were scattered across the Babylonian Empire or just out, out of Jerusalem. But as we see, this isn't Babylon anymore. This is the Roman Empire. But like the Old Testament saints were scattered, so are the New Testament saints. And just like the Old Testament saints were persecuted, so are the New Testament saints. And just as the Old Testament saints wandered, waiting for a land, a home to call their own, so here are the New Testament saints. I think the point that Peter is showing this Gentile audience, that they were enduring really what their adopted forefathers had experienced beforehand. I think Peter is using imagery to show them the family heritage of suffering as an elect exile. Now, the churches in these towns are, are not experiencing physical persecution. Typically, when we think of persecution, we think of what happened under Nero or what happened under other Roman emperors, um, the horrific physical uh, torture that happened to them. That's not quite happening yet. This is written around 60 AD. And so the, the Nero persecution it still has four years until that happens. So what we see here is a different type of persecution, maybe some, of, some sort of cultural pressure. These Christians, who used to be residents of that kingdom, had now become alien residents. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage the church who's been displaced by their faith, but reminding them that they're not forgotten, right? that you're just exiles. And though it seems like you're wandering on this side of glory, you're not forgotten. You're part of another kingdom you simply no longer fit well within the Roman culture or the Greek culture or even for us elect exiles today, the American culture. You're simply just elect exiles. God chose you to be this. And Peter reminds them that their current difficulty needs to be seen through the lens of their election. You were chosen. You didn't fall into this. You didn't stumble upon it. You didn't seek it out. In fact, Scripture says no one sought it out. You sought it out as much as Abraham, who was a polygamist until the Lord came to him and revealed the truth. So just like that, right, the Lord sought you. He chose you. In fact, when you look back at verse 2, I'm going to read it again. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We see what he chose you according to his foreknowledge. Peter is explaining to a confused people, listen, you need not question God's goodness or promises. The Father chose you, the Son covered you, and the Spirit grows you. And in this passage, we see the fullness of the Trinity took part in your adoption. And this is not an accident. It's not a mistake. It was by design. 
what Peter has to do is realign their mindset and expectations of this life. And so Peter is going to give them and us a bit of a reminder. Our second point is a living hope. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a seemingly hopeless situation. I had, a, I had an incident happen. This has been, this has been years ago. Uh, I was driving in the middle of the night uh, trying to get back. I actually had drill down in Richmond. I was in the National Guard. This was long before I was married. And, and, but I had left West Virginia. And I was going down there. And um, I was, like, falling asleep. It was, like, 1 in the morning. And I passed through one town, a second town, and then I got back on this road where... Uh, you know, it was, it was back up to 70. But these little towns, right, the speed limit dropped. And I honestly had paid no attention. I was just trying to survive and not, not wreck. And so um, I, as I'm driving, this, this, I, I see the blue lights, and I'm like, oh, man. He pulls me over, and he says, uh, license and registration. And I, and I said, listen, I, I, I was, you know, patting all my pockets you know, hoping that it would magically appear what I already knew to be the case, which is I had already, for, I realized I'd forgotten my wallet somewhere. I said, sir, sir, listen, I am so sorry, officer, I forgot my wallet. And he goes, well, your registration is bad. Do you have your old registration? I said, I don't have that either. And he asked me what I'm doing. I'm telling him, listen, I'm in the National Guard. Believe it or not, I'm a military police officer. And he's like, oh, goodness gracious. Uh, uh, and so as, as he's pulled me over, another police officer comes up behind him. This guy was from town two. And he comes up with his light, and he's like, you sped through my town going 70. It was a 35. What are you thinking? Did you, did you get his license and registration? He doesn't have his license and registration. Third police officer rolls up. He's from town one. He comes up. You went through my town going 70 miles an hour and 35. How dare you? And, yes, and then they all are like, he doesn't have license and registration. At this moment, I realize I'm going to pay a zillion dollar in tickets, and there's, this is, there's no hope out of this. None. Zero. Now, sadly, I think that's what we think about. When we use the word hope, a living hope, that's what we think of, this situation, a possibility with a little chance of happening. And so Peter wants to remind them when he says we have a living hope, it's not that type of hope. It's not the type of hope that causes you to cross your fingers. So he takes these people who are in a rather unfortunate situation and needs to give them proper context to show them you actually do have Hope. In verse 3, he says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Peter's encouragement to these Christians, notice he turns their eyes not to their current situation, but to the eternal one to give correct context. Right? In verse 3, he says, God caused you to be born again. He caused you to be born again to a living hope. Again, not a hope that's defined of a little chance. But this is a hope that we await knowing that what is promised is assured to come as the morning. This hope in life is alive and well, because Christ 
lives. It's why your faith is in vain if there's no resurrection, but because the, empty, the grave is empty, the hope to no longer be in exile is approaching for all saints. Now, the situation that Christians throughout time find themselves in, the promise is it will come to a cease. This, this too will end, and it will end in the most glorious fashion with us living life with our Lord, able to worship in all we do. So Peter continues to give the sweet encouragement explaining what we have been born again into. He says, uh, in, uh, to an inheritance, this is verse 4 and 5, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, and by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In the face of circumstances and a life that is filled with things and moments where all of it perishes, in fact, oftentimes many parts of our life, defiled by sin that seem to fade in the darkness, Christ offers this inheritance given to the children of God. And Peter extends this reminder. He says, listen, you are children of God, princes, Princesses, a kingdom awaits you, an inheritance awaits that is greater than any we can ever imagine. And notice, by the way, this inheritance is not kept by your good works. If you look back at the passage, right, it says it's, it's, it's not guarded by your church attendance or by your giving. It's guarded by Who? It says it's guarded by God's power. Your inheritance is guarded by the power of God. It's not something you will lose. By God through faith, it says. Remember, he did provide your faith, thus it is sustained. And this is why true saints persevere to the end. Now, as you know, and I blame many of you for this, we got a dog recently. Um, we named him Milo, and uh, you know, in our night's devotion and reading, the kids had asked in, in the beginning that, that Milo join us for this, um, so he also can hear the gospel. Now, my, listen, my kids and I had had this conversation, right? We had had this conversation. They they'd asked me a long time ago, uh, do uh, do animals go to heaven? And I, I told them what I thought. And it wasn't a big deal then. But then came Milo. <laughs> now the question all of a sudden turned very personal. They weren't asking, in general, do creatures go to heaven? They now look down at this little tiny puppy with his big eyes, who's licking their face. And they said, will Milo go to heaven? Now, there's something kind of sweet about this question. The Lord gave us the gift of creation. It's God's common grace to all humanity, those who love him and don't. It was, it's a kindness, a, a grace that he gave us creation. There's many aspects of creation that's beautiful and wonderful and enjoyable. And animals are one of them. right? I, I think he gave us the gift of animals to eat, maybe not all of you like that part, but some to eat, some to pet, right? And, and some to own and care for. 
Now, my kids had fallen in love, but this life's reality hit them that this sweet little dog, this sweet little Milo, he too will perish. It will not last forever. And though this is a gift given to them by their mother who loves them and by their dad who loves them, we cannot assure this dog's life. I cannot protect the inevitable grief that's going to come. That answer didn't go over well with the kids. They wailed and cried because the reality is that all we know, even the good things on this side of heaven, are defiled and they all perish. But the Lord who gives everything promises you something far greater than you can possibly imagine. So much time has been given in discussing what heaven will be like. Yet we only know a life that is entangled in sin. And here God says, I have an inheritance for you, and you you will never understand until you enter it what this inheritance is like, how beautiful it is. You cannot possibly imagine the inheritance of eternal life with Christ Jesus. I've heard some people say it's like an eternal church service. And all I can think is, goodness, I hope not. I hope not. Listen, I like, I like, I like coming to church and worshiping, but goodness gracious, like, that, that does not sound like perfection. We sit and wonder, but the truth is, it's nothing like you can imagine because all you've known is a creation that was defiled. So Peter's explaining, listen, I know it's rough here, but Christ's death wasn't in vain. The Lord gave you a promise. He fulfilled a promise. His death was to secure you for this, so that in glory you may be trophies of grace. Your living hope is not this life or the temporary comforts and blessings that come along with it. It is Christ Jesus. And I ask that you check your heart this morning and ask yourself, what would be taken away from you that would cause your hope to crumble? And I know quickly we can just say, oh, there's, you know, nothing, right? We can quickly answer that. But I think we need to really give a thought and be honest with ourselves because I know what I've experienced and I also know what I've seen. Just in the past two years, whether it was COVID or political election that didn't go your way, I've seen people's hope and faith crumble, crumble, because it was rooted in foolishness. In the darkest times, Peter reminds that we look upon the mercies of God, and he explains why. A third point is a genuine faith. It says, 1 Peter 1.6, it says, in this you rejoice. Now, I'm cutting this up a little bit, so I just want to give you a quick reminder. In this, that is the uh, imperishable, undefiled, unfading gift that God has secured for you in verses 4 and 5, and for your election, the atonement, and sanctification referenced in verse 3. So in all of that, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials. Now I want to pause there for just a moment. I want you to take note of what Peter is doing. He's not saying, oh, you're grieving? Ah, it's time for you to get over that. It's no time to be sad. You know what? What you need to do, you just need to pray the pain away. You got saved. What do you got to be sad about? Well, hey, your grief is simply a lack of faith. There's none of that because that's as ungodly as unhelpful. Peter is dealing kindly with these hurting Christians. You have experienced hurt and pain. By the way, again, not physical. This is emotional, psychological, cultural pressure that they're facing. And notice, he does not say, don't grieve. Rather, there's an expectation of grieving. While you're here on this earth for a little while, and at the end of that grieving, there is a rejoicing because our pain is not without purpose. The same God who chose his elect exiles produces steadfastness by testing, thus strengthening our faith. That's what James 1 says. And Peter says as much here. In verse 7, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The pain has a purpose. The testing, the pressure. We see here it's for our good as our faith is strengthened. Of course, it's uncomfortable. We know that. My son, who uh, we, we homeschool, and when I used to teach at, at, a, at the school I used to teach at, I was known for giving just these ridiculous hard tests. Um, and I thought to myself, you know what? When I homeschool, I will never do that to my children. Well, I'm a liar. I do it to my children. And I give them these big, scary tests, and they see them. And Maddox, especially, he has a hard time sitting down for any length of time. Uh, he, uh, he, when I, I'll put the test, it sounds like a phone book hitting the table as it lands in front of him. And he'll say, oh, Dad, no, not this. Not a test is going to take me forever. And he screams into the heavens. I say, buddy, it's going to take you like 30 minutes. Just relax and take the test. Dad, this is so hard. Buddy, you've done this before. You've done all of this before. You're fine. Just calm down and take the test. And I have to tell him often, listen, I challenge you because I love you. I push you academically because I want you intellectually to grow. I want you to grow in character. So we push you out of your mental comfort zone. Even, right, I even tell them, listen, your, your, your body is going to grow, and you're going to face growing pains. Though I do give them some comfort. I say, with my genetics, it only happens like twice, so you should be good. <laughs> They're limited. The pain has a purpose. You're refined by fire, by the great refiner. And what it does is it reveals weaknesses. It reveals where we're insecure and where we fail to lean. And I don't know about you, but I've learned more about myself and my failures and my struggles and trials than I ever have in any of my victories. As the true character of gold is seen in a refiner's fire, so faith's true character 
is revealed when tested. And we see where our faith lies in those dark days. And so these dark days are lended to us by the Lord to show how weak we are or how strong he's made us or even for some of you that the faith you thought you had is a sham. The grief and pain is part of the story of sanctification. I think what hit me about sanctification, I was, uh, this guy had asked me to come make a knife with him. He said, hey, uh, Jeremy, you want to go, you wanna go forge a knife? And I felt pretty manly. I don't know about you. I don't get invited to a lot of forges. I said, sure, I'll come to your forge and forge a knife. And so on the way there, he asked me, he said, um, what type of knife you want to make? Now, I don't know a lot of knife names, right? I know, like, there's a steak knife. I'm like, I don't want to ask to make a steak knife. I got a lot of steak knives. I said, listen, I, I told him, I said, listen, I got this thing I'm doing. It's called a PB platter. It's like a variety sandwich packet of all the great peanut butter sandwiches. And I tell you what I really like. I would like a very awesome, epic, manly butter knife. And he looked at me with this, it wasn't, it wasn't disappointment. It was more like disgust. I've invited you to go make a knife, and you want a butter knife. And, and I said it out loud. I thought, yeah, I probably should have Googled knife names. Been like, I want a deer cutter or something. I don't know, something out there that exists, surely. A fish scaler. Anyways, so five hours later, I'm with this guy, and we're making this butter knife. Uh, much longer than I really cared about the butter knife. I, I didn't realize how long this process was going to take. I hammered it, we put it in the fire, hammered it some more, put it in the fire, over and over again, applying heat and pressure, heat and pressure, heat and pressure. And truly, what was a railroad-tized piece of junk came out to be the most beautiful butter knife you've ever seen. It was amazing, truly, I'm, I'm saying this, it was incredible. Heat and pressure, trials and tribulations. It's not a delight, but its product is what makes us useful for the kingdom. And it grows us. It changes us. So what Peter's saying as Christians, don't let your head be drooped in some sort of helpless state. Your struggle does not exist because your God is negligent. It exists because your God is active working to mold you into the man and woman he wants you to be. We just don't like those type of lessons. It's inconvenient. And sometimes we become like Maddox, right? We go, oh gosh, how long is this going to take? How long? But whether it's a test for 30 minutes or a pain for 30 years, in the scope of eternity, it's a blip. It's a blip. Peter's goal here is to meet these people in their various kinds of troubles and draw their attention away of what men can do to you and point them to what Christ has done for you. And though life is confusing and sometimes incredibly frustrating, difficult, 
and even tragic. Peter reminds him, and he reminds you that God chose you so you would have a living hope that is producing in you a genuine faith. And he even tells you why. So that it may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ for his glory. So when you say and yell out or pray to God, God, use me, understand what that may mean. Sometimes that means enduring grief and glorifying his sovereignty by your perseverance or using tragedy, discomfort, or difficulty to grow us so the spirit sanctifying work can be proclaimed and used for the body. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I remember what partly led to that confusing time uh, in my early conversion was the strange markers people had made for what a Christian was supposed to be. I remember uh, the church we went to at the time, right? If you were a good Christian, you were a patriotic American, which I didn't know exactly how that worked for like, you know, Christians and other nations. But okay, I get it. I'm supposed to be patriotic. That's what a good Christian is. And I'm supposed to be, oh, I'm always supposed to be happy. In fact, I can't say many times I've heard that one in some sort of in, in counseling where someone is grieving and they feel guilty about their grief, about their frustrations, even about their anger, because, man, as a good Christian, I'm just always supposed to be happy. Sometimes our markers for real Christendom are deeply unbiblical and way off. So what Peter is going to help them and us, what he's going to do is make some biblical markers so that confused elect exiles can remember what it means to be a Christian. So what does it mean? What is true Christianity? He says here, right? They love Jesus. Simply put, they seek to love him and to love others. They believe in Jesus. So they trust in his works and his word. They rejoice in Jesus because they know what it accomplished. He, He saved their souls. And for this reason, there's inexpressible joy, even in the midst of uncertain social pressure. Their joy is anchored in the remarkable truth that there is a God who became man, who died our death so that we have life. And he chose us to experience this and to know him for eternity. Simply put, what Peter's doing here is he's reminding them these confused, grieving Christians, he's reminding them, Christianity 101, of the gospel. He's reminding them of the gospel, that every day, the bright ones, the dark ones, that every day the gospel is good news. For young Christians, for old Christians, for the intellectual Christian, 
for the Christian who's wise. Every day, the gospel is good news. And that we need reminded of every day. And that's the marker we ought to return when we begin to wander. We need reminded, just like the Gentiles in Asia Minor, of the good news that we are not alone and that we've been adopted into a new family, which is our final point. Now, Peter has told them, you are like Abraham and Israel, right? Chosen exiles, anticipating to one day to live in God's kingdom. The family, right, you're adopted into has experienced these very things you're experiencing now, except there's a huge difference between the Old Testament church and you, the New Testament church. And it's one that's to your advantage. Listen carefully. Concerning this salvation, this is verse 10 and 11, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I don't know about you, but I find this absolutely fascinating. When you sit and think about what we just read, right? the prophets who wrote about grace, who wrote about the coming Messiah, they pondered. What is this? I see what I wrote, but what does this actually mean? How will this actually manifest itself? I get it. There's a Messiah coming to save the world, but how? When Moses wrote, okay, that this guy, this Messiah is going to come and crush the head of a serpent, what's that going to look like? When Isaiah wrote that, that, that this Messiah, the suffering servant, is going to be pierced and crushed for our iniquities, what, what exactly, Lord, do you mean by that? How is this going to look like? Peter's saying, I know it seems like you're suffering and that you somehow you got the short end of the stick because you didn't get to see Jesus. But neither did any of the prophets. Neither did any of the other uh, the elect exiles of the Old Testament. They all wanted to know exactly how it was all going to play out. They all wanted to see what the suffering servant would do and how he would do it. They had grief, like you and I. But they had to have hope. But they didn't get to know what this church, what these churches in Asia Minor got to know, and what you and I got to know. We get to know in full what they only knew in part. And Peter's trying to show them the encouragement in this. It's not like they're living in dark. Though it may feel like dark times, they know what's happening. They know what's going to happen because they know the promises given to them. What Peter's doing is he's showing them the benefits and privileges of being adopted into this family. Now, every family has its privileges, right? Uh, even being part of the Barry family, right? You have, there's, there's privileges. Uh, our privilege is you get to be surprised or excited over really not that exciting of things. Let me give you an example. 
My kids, up until two weeks ago, had never had Lucky Charms. Never had it. Uh, I don't know the, the correct term, but like, um, I don't know, my wife, is it crunchy? Like, it's everything's organic and mulchy, right? It's like all freshly grown organic stuff. And so my, my kids, we were right with my family in North Carolina, and they brought this giant box of Lucky Charms, and Julie was sleeping still, and the kids came up to me because they were offered Lucky Charms, and they looked at me and said, please, Dad. Please. They didn't, even, they didn't even ask me. I knew what it was. The lucky charms were glowing on the table. They're like, Dad, please, please. I'm like, all right, you can have some lucky charms. Yes. They're, you know, they're eating it. They're all, oh, this is the greatest cereal ever. So I'm laughing about it because I'm like, man, like every other kid there is like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> it's lucky charms. I'm telling Julie about this and with a straight face. <laughs> I'll have to keep myself together because I still laugh. I, okay, she, with a straight face, she looks at me and she goes, well, did they know about the, about the oatmeal that I brought? <laughs> did they know about the organic oatmeal you brought? Yes, they knew about the organic oatmeal you brought. They wanted the cereal with candy in it. They didn't want the, the mulch meal. <laughs> now listen, there, there are privileges There are privileges in being a Christian that are far more glorious than that. We are a member of God's family. You get the gift of a new birth. You're able to contemplate and reflect on the mercies of God. You have a reservation in heaven. Literally, script. that's what he says in this passage. There's a reservation made for you in heaven by God. You have a resurrection through the resurrection of Christ. You're not waiting for an atonement. You get to experience what the prophets of old deeply desire to see. You have an unwavering Hope and Peter reminds you of these privileges that none of the that all the unbelieving world does not have. The fact that we are recipients of these gospel privileges should give us a persistent joy that outlasts grief. And that's his point to them. Furthermore, Peter writes about how this blessing was no accident. Verse 12, he says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets of old says here that they were raised up for your benefit. These things are announced for our benefit. These truths. The truth of who Jesus is and what he did. And check this out. I don't know if you heard the ending part. These are things that angels long to look. Sit and think about that for a moment. Angels long to look They long to look on what Christ is doing. The next time you 
shrug or fail to rejoice in the gospel. Think of the angels who are in heaven with the Lord, who see the glory and majesty that surrounds him, yet they long to look what he is doing in this salvific plan. The beautiness of it, that sometimes we fail to see or acknowledge. Angels had heard of the coming salvation of, for mankind, and we see they desire to know more and see more. It's truly the greatest and holiest mystery. That is the incarnation and the work of Jesus Christ was revealed to mankind. And though we may neglect this eternal, beautiful treasure, all of heaven, all the angels, all the celestial beings, all of heaven, worships the God of our salvation. So church, let us do the same. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.